How do you go about creating an exit strategy to maximize profits? You think about the exit strategy when you're actually creating the company. Build your intellectual property, build a supply chain that can scale. And if you can solve those challenges ahead of time, it'll make you far more attractive. If you could give a few pieces of advice to your younger self, what would they be? Life is full of temporary forevers. People get too comfortable. There can be many external factors that force you uh, to change your, your way of living or your mindset. You need to be open-minded to change. How do you know it is the right time to launch your innovative startup? If you think it's the right time, it was probably the right time uh, three or six months before. Welcome. My name is Daniel Gerlay, and I'm the president of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society, an international organization supporting exceptional young people in accomplishing their entrepreneurial ambitions. Co-hosting the interview with me today is Louis Swire, director of GS's UK operations and the editor-in-chief of the Curious Times. Joining us is Dr. Jules Hammond, founder and CEO of BFC, a company that has developed biofuel-powered paper batteries. In 2020, the company raised a 3 million euro seed round. Since then, BFC has received numerous prestigious international awards, and as of 2022, it is about to close an 18 million euro Series A round to fund international expansion and commercialization. Louis and I met Jules at the prestigious Summit of Minds in Chamonix, where he received the Good for Nature Prize. We were incredibly impressed with Jules and BFC, so we invited him on for an interview. We are incredibly pleased to welcome Dr. Jules Hammond. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you, Lewis. It's great to have you on. What is your story, and how did you become an entrepreneur? Uh, I was born in Grenoble in France, uh, in, in the center of the Alps, um, but I actually lived most of my life in the United Kingdom. Uh, my background is electronic engineering. I studied a bachelor's, master's, and a PhD um, before transferring uh, to biosensing. So my PhD was focused on uh, something called nano-gap biosensors for prostate and breast cancer detection. And it was really here where I started entrepreneurship. So I founded my first startup called eGap Sense based on the technology developed in my PhD and later exited this through IP to the Ministry of Defense, uh, the division called DSTL. I continued my studies, um, but really had caught the bug already, so created a second startup called Configure. And this uh, startup was focused on silicon carbide electronic switch arrays, as well as uh, algorithms or programs to control these um, switches. And uh, the IP was transferred to a well-known company called Dyson as part of their electric vehicle program. I then decided to return to Grenoble, uh, my birth city, uh, to continue my entrepreneurship. And I joined a research team working on implantable biofuel cells. That is a fuel cell that's implanted in the body, harvesting glucose and oxygen from the bloodstream to power devices like pacemakers, as well as insulin pumps. But using my entrepreneurial spirit, I decided to pivot uh, the patent portfolios from the research body of France away from implantable technologies to 
BFC's product, which is a paper biofuel cell, essentially an organic energy solution for modern day uh, low power microelectronics. How did you secure investment for BFC? So uh, before we actually created uh, BFC, it was my mission to identify sources of funding. And because of the capital required to grow a deep tech company, I went straight for venture capital. Um, so first of all, I identified all of the potential candidates um, of investors that would be interested in deep tech, as well as uh, tech for good. Um, so our technology is, is identified as clean tech or green tech. And then I approached these investors as I was creating the company. Um, so we were very fortunate uh, that we have such a strong technology. And uh, our first investors were strong French uh, VCs uh, called Demeter, Supernova Invest, and a large bank called BMP Paribas. How did you find the team that was working on the implantable cells? Well, my reason for doing a, a postdoc in, in Grenoble is that um, it's uh, home to a well-known professor, Dr. Serge Cosnier, uh, who's really the grandfather of biofuel, biofuel cell technology. Um, in fact, the research group in Grenoble were the first to implant such uh, devices into mammals really were at the forefront. And it, it was the intersection of my interest in uh, bioelectrochemistry as well as green energy from my two startups, EGAPSense and Configure. Um, now, in terms of building the team, it was very important for me to find people with interdisciplinary backgrounds. Um, so it was here that I, I met our fellow co-founder who has a, a background in um, science, but also in, in communication. Uh, so she has a very strong background in bioelectrochemistry and it's someone that over the years as my postdoc I, I grew to trust. I then um, reached out to a former colleague and friend in the United Kingdom that I did my, my undergraduate and postgraduate studies with and decided to try to recruit him uh, to join. So this was Dr. Alexander uh, Segev's. From that point on, um, I decided to look for people that added value to the team. So it was very important, first of all, to build a team that shared the same culture, um, that had the same ambition and drive, uh, but also to provide uh, technical uh, expertise in different domains um, in, our, in our challenge to provide uh, our technology to the public. So obviously you've got a very scientific background, but how much technical skill is necessary to build and lead a tech startup? I think it's good to have a strong foundation in, in tech. You can't be an expert of everything. And I think today in tech startups, it's better to be a, a jack of all trades. Um, so in fact, it, it was very advantageous for me to have my background in electronics, but I also had always been curious in business. And I think uh, this is often a, a large challenge for tech entrepreneurs is if you really have uh, apathy towards business, um, it can cause you many problems. I think you have to be curious in how businesses operate and how to commercialize. Um, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of skill required um, to navigate a, a deep tech startup um, to fundraising and then um, to later on acquisition. Could you have done it without your technical background? There are people that are so curious that even if they're not an expert, they know how to learn and they can learn quickly. 
um, and they can adapt to situations. So I think there's been many instances where you have people that may not be a, a particular expert in, in the domain that they've entered, um, but they have enough supporting uh, background in adjacent um, areas that means that they will go and find out the information uh, that's required to make them successful in that field. And sometimes the skills they bring in from other fields are more valuable than being an expert in just that one field. So I think having an interdisciplinary background is is maybe more important, but it's of course difficult to um, be a tech entrepreneur without some sort of foundation, but I wouldn't say it's the most critical um, reason for someone's success. How do you go about creating an exit strategy to maximize profits? The first thing is to understand your market very well, um, to understand the big actors uh, in your market, because these could be potential uh, targets um, to acquire you later on, and to build relationships with those um, potential partners. So at BFC, we've done just that. We have partnerships with some of the most successful uh, companies in their, in their divisions be it microelectronics with ST microelectronics, um, be it Avery Dennison when it comes to labels or RFID technology. And uh, I, I think it's very important that you think about the exit strategy when you're actually creating the company, because a lot of decisions you make along the way uh, will impact your attractiveness um, to a M&A, a merger or acquisition. So it's important that you build um, your client base um, it's important that you build your intellectual property. So this could be patents or, or know-how. It's important that you build a supply chain that can scale. Um, this is one of the key factors I've realized, particularly in our industry, where we're targeting millions, if not billions of uh, units for production. If you don't have a, a solid supply chain, um, the, the potential person or company that would acquire you may see that as a huge risk because it, you may have limitations on how quickly you can scale. So I think it's also important to understand um, these limitations for growth after the acquisition. And if you can solve those challenges ahead of time, it will make you a far more attractive um, to these potential acquirers. Um, you've previously mentioned uh, how important it is for people to have interdisciplinary backgrounds. How do you value the role of sport in people's lives? Um, because obviously some of the some of the big finance firms really value team sports in, in their candidates. I, I think sport is a, a very important uh, facet in entrepreneurship. And in fact, a lot of the people that have joined our company um, have, uh, you know, fantastic uh, sporting pedigrees. Uh, our, one of our co-founders, uh, Dr. Marie Bertuel, actually was a professional athlete playing uh, basketball for Oregon. And, oh. you know, I think this high level of performance um, that athletes uh, are pushed towards really uh, plays an important role in day-to-day -day, um, startup life. It means that uh, you often have leadership skills. It often means that you have drive and determination. You know how to learn lessons from failures. Um, and most importantly, you understand the importance of camaraderie and supporting your teammates uh, through the bad times and then enjoying in the good times. So I think sport uh, plays a good part. And I also think it's an important time personally to um, step away from the startup and have time for reflection. And I think it's important in, in work-life balance. Yeah, I, I totally agree. 
Um, what education will best prepare someone to be a tech entrepreneur? So like business or, or engineering or even electronics? The reason I entered electronics is at the time, it seemed like the area for most growth. I mean, when I started moving towards electronics, this was uh, just as the first iPhone was being released. And if we think of how quickly uh, microelectronics has grown since then, um, it seems to have been a good decision. Then when I did my PhD, um, my decision was to move into bioelectronics. I still don't think um, this area has grown um, to the maturity that we will see in the next decade. But I think uh, with the advent of things like the Apple Watch, uh, as well as wearable continuous glucose monitors, um, I, I think it's clear that this is a growing area. So my, my recommendation for education for tech entrepreneur is to try to identify a, a field that is going to be growing in the next five to 15 years. Um, so today, of course, that would be somewhere like artificial intelligence or machine learning, or for instance, in the field of um, cryptocurrencies or blockchain. I think these are really opportunities for young people to add a huge amount of value in the next, uh, say, 10 years. Then um, as an adage to that, I would say to diversify your knowledge with extracurricular activities or um, if you're doing a, a modular course, maybe select one or two modules as part of your, your studies that will broaden your uh, understanding of the world. How do you handle the risk that comes with being on the frontier of innovation? Kind of failing to uh, identify failure uh, leads to failure. Being at the frontier of innovation is clearly higher risk. Um, you have issues with market adoption. You might have technical challenges. You might have scale-up challenges. And I think the first thing you should do is to sit down and try to write down and be quite brutally honest about the risks that you, you face as a startup or a, an entrepreneur. The next is to identify ways that you can mitigate these. Um, you know, you... I think every entrepreneur has a, a ability to accept some level of risk. I think being an entrepreneur that, that that's uh, uh, intrinsic in in the role, um, but it doesn't mean that you um, can blatantly ignore risk. I think it's important to understand the risks and to have um, a plan of how you uh, choose to address. The, the risks that are in front of you. So it may mean that you have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. But one most important thing is to try to predict what you will do if you face that risk. Um, you, you arrive at a decision point. And one of the worst things you can do as an entrepreneur is not to make a decision. Um, one of the most important benefits of being a, a startup is agility. That means the, the speed at which you can make decisions. So you shouldn't be paralyzed by decision-making. And if you've been a good entrepreneur and you, you understand that uh, being at the frontier of innovation means that you're at the frontier of risk, you will then have an action plan. Okay, if I identify risk A, I can do choice one or two. And you have to be quick in making that, that choice. We, we touched on it earlier, but what is your view on work-life balance? I think it's something that's uh, difficult to achieve uh, in the early phase of uh, starting uh, a company. I also think it's difficult at the early phase of building a team, but I think it's something that's uh, important and often overlooked. 
Um, I think the natural tendency is to think that you can do more work. You can stay up later. You can sleep just four or five hours. You can maybe uh, avoid taking 30 or 60 minutes to go for a run or play some sport with your friends. But I actually think uh, taking the time for yourself um, to enjoy your relationships with friend, family, or just yourself um, actually has a, a net benefit. And uh, I think it's just difficult sometimes to um, realize that you're not being selfish for taking that time. And actually, it often has a better impact on, on yourself and also the people that have to spend time around you. And I, I have to say, I think in the last few years, um, particularly after the COVID uh, pandemic, I think more people are realizing the importance to create a good work-life balance and the benefits it can have. Do you have to become a workaholic to succeed as an entrepreneur? Most successful entrepreneurs naturally are workaholics. They are typically people that are curious, that if they don't know something, they go and find a book or Google uh, to find the answer. Um, and I think you'll find that most uh, entrepreneurs want to be busy. They're high performers uh, that believe that every minute counts. Um, but... Uh, I think uh, now people are becoming educated in the sense that it, it's also important uh, to avoid burnout. Um, and I think we live in a, a much higher pressure environment today with the, the the digital age, the ability to communicate so quickly through you know video calls, through through um, platforms like Slack where we can exchange messages so easily. The temptation is just to sit there by your computer or your phone. And, and constantly do work. Um, but I, I think today people are starting to realize that it, it's beneficial to take some time away from the keyboard. How do you know it is the right time to launch your innovative startup? Too many people uh, try to wait for the perfect timing. Um, it never happens. Your best just to, again, use the number one uh, kind of benefit of being a startup, and that's agility. If you think it's the right time, it was probably the right time uh, three or six months before. What business books that had a major influence on you would you recommend for young entrepreneurs? I, there's too many to list, um, you know, zero to one and, and, and this type of thing. But the one recommendation I would give today is the, the new book by uh, Tony Fidel, the inventor of the iPod and, and founder of Nest, which was acquired by Google. Um, the book is called Build. And Build is really a, a quick guide of all of the lessons that Tony Fidel learned uh, during his uh, incredible career. And it's really a playbook of, you know, how to approach building a, a startup, building a product that makes an impact. So I, this would be my recommendation, Build by Tony Fidel. If you could give a few pieces of advice to your younger self when you were starting out as an entrepreneur, what would they be? Everything works, but nothing works for long. You know, you have to have the confidence to change or change your mind. Um, and the other advice I'd have is uh, life is full of temporary forevers. What I mean by that is that people um, get too comfortable. They believe that this is how the life will be uh, for a long period of time. And there can be many external factors that force you uh, to change your your way of living or your mindset 
Um, and I, I think you need to be open-minded to change. That being yourself, your environment, uh, or your your choices uh, in terms of work. Earlier you mentioned that one of the fastest growing industries is artificial intelligence. Providing you weren't involved in BFC and you were a new entrepreneur entering the world of business, what kind of business would you start and in what industry? Well, I, I mentioned that before I decided to, to go into electronic engineering, I was curious about law. And I would say, you know, one obvious one would be to use the, the new open AI platforms, ChatGPT, and, and apply it to legal advice. You know, build a AI system that reviews all the different uh, court cases, um, legal textbooks, and try to provide a good legal advice uh, for difficult situations. I, I think this is one example where um, AI or machine learning can have a huge impact. You had a formal scientific education, not a business education. So how did you pick up on business skills and knowledge? I was very fortunate that while I was bringing up, uh, I had a role model in my grandfather who built many businesses uh, from scratch. Um, and really, I understood the value of creation and, and the value you could create for other people, um, be it your colleagues, be it your family, uh, by having successful businesses. Uh, I was always curious by business. In the United Kingdom, we had a show called The Apprentice uh, with uh, uh, Lord Sugar. And... Um, you know, I was always interested in 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 decision making. I, I mentioned, uh, you know, I was curious in law. I, I wanted to understand how to be good at making the right decision. And um, yeah, I, I would say uh, this is probably what drove me to always look uh, sideways to opportunities to bridge the gap between uh, my technology interests and my business interests. Where do you see yourself in 10 years time? In 10 years' time, I would hope that I've exited BFC. I've helped to grow it to an international company, changing the way we, we power um, microelectronics. And then I would hope that I have an opportunity to spend time with my wonderful partner and help other entrepreneurs um, you know, fast-track the learning that we've had through creating a, a successful startup. I would really like to try to give back and try to add more value to other people's companies or, or lives. What role can a board of advisors play in your startup? And how can you put together a board that can truly make your company move forward? That's a really good question. And I think uh, it's something that a lot of startups uh, don't do quickly enough. Now, I do think you have to take your time to find the correct board members. I think the first place to start is where your your weakness might be. And that might typically be um, a key opinion leader in your market. So if you're doing microelectronics, having someone that's really, um, you know, set the standard, uh, that will add a lot of uh, weight when it comes to going to speak to uh, potential clients or trying to raise investment. Then you can start to look at more specific um, skills. So it could be, for instance, uh, regulation and standards or lobbying for, for such. It could be, for instance, in the scale-up of your technology. Um, it could be in the business development or marketing. Uh, there are many facets to a successful business. And I would say eventually your board should um, 
should have experts from each different facet. Um, I also think it's good to have some different cultures, uh, you know, people that have either been successful in a different country um, or have come from uh, vastly different educations, uh, because this will give you a, a greater diversity when it comes to the decision making and ultimately should hopefully um, promote uh, better decisions. So, but to follow on to that, you said, uh, how would you go about doing this? I think you have to go and find people that, first of all, are willing to be uh, mentors or, or board members. And number two, make sure they really are fully aligned with your vision. So as an entrepreneur, you should really have a, a short, mid and a long term vision for your company. And you need to try to find uh, mentors or advisors um, that are completely aligned with this. That's really interesting and actually something I'm I'm doing at the moment with the Curious Times. I'm approaching board advisors and it's it's a fascinating process. Um is it, is there a number that you'd recommend of, of board advisors that's perfect for making the, the correct decision overloading yourself with too much noise or information? I'm tr trying to think, but uh, for BFC we're now close to fifty people and I'd say that wow. we're have kind of five uh, board members so you could almost say you need one board member per 10 people um, this could be a good start but of course it really probably depends on the type of uh, type of company yeah um, it, it depends uh, how many assets are covered from each advisor so for instance if if you have a, a background in two of the the sectors and then your other advisor has a background in three of the sectors you you might be covering five sectors with two people um what you find is as time goes on uh you need to have people that are more specific in their expertise um so equally it's it's probably better to have a very high caliber mentor or advisor in a single sector to start with um, because as the company grows, uh, a mid-tier advisor will slowly feel like uh, they're not a particular expert in any one field uh, and therefore maybe don't have the same uh, strength of voice as maybe some of the all-star advisors you may later bring on to the board. But then, uh, of course, as the company matures, you may slowly restructure your board and you may create multiple boards um, for different topics. What do you think about bringing people of different ages into your company? I think it's important to diversify the company that's on today, but also on education, on culture, on age. Um, I think ultimately it allows you to, to have better um, diversity of opinions. You have more experience to pull from. And uh, I think uh, young people can often have more experience or knowledge than some older people. You were just talking um, in the context of board advisors about ensuring that everyone feels their voice is valued within the company. What is your advice to managing a greater team? I mean, obviously, uh, BFC at the moment is very successful. 50 people in the company, that's, that's brilliant. Um, but how do you ensure that they all feel like they're playing their part and and their role is valued in getting the organization to where it wants to be. It's definitely a, a challenge. And as a startup uh, grows and matures, you find that the company structure that you started with uh, often doesn't work as you scale. So for instance, when we started BFC, uh, we were much more of a flatter structure. We then moved into a hierarchical 
structure as we grew towards kind of 25 people that worked for some time but then as we closed in on 40 nearly now 50 uh, we found that we needed to move more to a matricial to provide some uh, lateral communication between the, the different divisions that we created um, to to aid in the communication now i think you still need the hierarchy there because ultimately someone has to be uh, taking responsibility for multiple people um but to allow people to have a voice, you have to create a, a town hall, uh, a place where people can vocalize. So in our company, we've created um, entire team alignment meetings. We've created um, meetings for different projects, for the different managers, for the different divisions. Um, and like that, we try to make sure that people have an opportunity to communicate. There's also now today um, very smart software that you can use that allows people to provide a nice feedback that you can perform surveys to try to understand in a confidential manner um, what's going well and what could maybe be improved in the company. Um, and like this, you create a safe uh, opportunity for people to to vocalize um you know, their concerns or, or even to provide positive feedback, uh, something that they may feel embarrassed doing in front of a, a large team. Do you give stock options to your employees? Yes, uh, stock options is a, a good way to motivate, but shouldn't be the be all and end all. Um, because, of course, stock options are really only uh, valuable once uh, the company exits or goes for IPO or, or you have a, a way to actually execute those options. So I, I think it really needs to be a mixture um, of salary, work environment, uh, opportunity for growth, um, as well as uh, opportunity for stock options, because then, of course, the value that they're creating uh, is reconciled in, in the stock options. What are your thoughts on intellectual property? So for a lot of tech startups, IP becomes very important, um, but it's also important to understand where the IP has a value and where it doesn't. Um, so IP uh, covers not just patents, where, which sometimes people isolate as being the sole uh, you know, aspect of IP, you know, trade secrets, so to speak. It can be uh, recipes or, or process um, descriptions, or it can be knowing a, a very specific material uh, used uh, inside a product. Um, so I, I think it's important to protect it. Of course, you can do things like have non-disclosure agreements. Um, you can train your staff to understand the importance of um, confidential information and, and intellectual property. Um, but it shouldn't be the only thing that your company is built on. Um, it takes time to build trust. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's uh, something that has to be be monitored um the point is is if it gets to a point where you are stripped um you're restricting the the intellectual pro property transfer between employees uh, it can also create friction it can cause a, a sense of lack of communication even if the intention is to uh, ultimately try to protect uh, the company so it's a careful balance what's next for bfc's technology um so today bfc has uh, developed a, a paper energy solution uh, 
in the in the paper biofuel cell. Um, our real vision now is to transform our electronics from you know this flexible PCB um, to something that's essentially fully printed on paper. Uh, our mission really is to provide uh, very low cost, very low environmental impact microelectronics for applications in logistics, wearable health devices, single-use medical tests. Uh, we want to provide uh, what we say data opportunities uh, without the downsides of a battery. Um, so by allowing us to transition to printed circuits um, with the minimum amount of uh, electronic chips, uh, we're confident that we can provide this. We have come to the end of today's discussion, which I found incredibly interesting and useful. On behalf of the Global Young Entrepreneur Society, Dr. Jules Hammond, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Well, Daniel Lewis, uh, the pleasure is mine. And again, it's a pleasure to, to meet again after Summit of Minds in, in Chamonix. Um, and I, I'm sure this won't be the last time we, we stay in contact.